Well, good morning again. Um, if you have a copy of Scripture, uh, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are we finished up our, our series in Psalm 119, and now we're moving to a 16-week study looking at this, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jimmy asked me this morning, was I ready for today? And I said, everything except feeling like a complete hypocrite standing up to preach what I'm preaching. Coming out of, coming out of Psalm 119, I don't, I don't know about you, but there was this um, conviction on my part of you, you read the words of the psalmist and his, his love and longing for the word. And then you see in your own life the way things can um, deter you and, and draw your attention away from that. And then today we begin our series in the Sermon on the Mount and, and looking specifically at the Beatitudes and you read through these. And um, I say all that to say this. Um, I'm going to stand and preach to you as one who needs to hear what I'm saying. So do not take what I'm saying as one who has this figured out and is coming to you with all the answers. Um, we're looking at the word of the Lord together, um, allowing the double-edged sword to do its work. Um, to, to, to wound and to heal and to break and to restore. And so we, we pray to that end today. Again, we're looking at, over the next 16 weeks, all of Matthew 5 through 7, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, a similar sermon is given in Luke's Gospel, but it's the Sermon on the, the Flat Place, the Sermon on the Plain. And so it's similar content, but not the exact same recording of the exact same message. But here in Matthew 5, we... We see in this context, and again, kind of setting up the context of what's going on in Matthew, we, we see Matthew's account of the lineage of, of Jesus, of his birth account. Then we see the beginning of Jesus' ministry in, in chapter 3 with his baptism to fulfill all righteousness, as he says. Going out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days to show that he is the true and better Adam, the true and better Israel who endured the temptation to walk in righteousness and then he begins preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he calls his disciples. And so at the beginning of this ministry, as Matthew has it recorded, one of the first um, sermons we, we see from Christ, I guess technically the first one would be in chapter 4 when he says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But in Matthew 5-7, through 7, we see this sermon of, of Jesus. And as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, and as we're over the next 16 weeks going to be looking at this, it's important for us to kind of have an understanding of what the Sermon on the Mount is and is not. Especially as we get into the Beatitudes. We'll often see these crocheted on pillows and stitched onto wall placards. But yet if we understand the weight of what's going on here, I don't know that I want to lay my head on it at night with the weight that is there. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, oftentimes the Sermon on the Mount is is given either one of two ways, I guess, that, that I would say miss kind of where it's going, is they're given as nice little examples that are nice little platitudes that we go and we seek to be pepped up by from time to time. Or, or it's often seen as a new Sinai, as if Jesus is coming down as the new Moses to give a new law. But if we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we look at what Jesus is teaching, he's not giving a new law. He's not coming in saying, forget all that you've heard before. In fact, he, he says, as we're going to deal with in coming weeks, he didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to do away with what was given. He came to fulfill it. 
He came to show that he was the fulfillment of these things, that we needed to ultimately go to him to be saved, not to Moses. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not giving a new law. He's giving a better understanding of the law that was already given. He's showing even more our inability to keep the law that was given by Moses. He's showing in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not just an outward expression of these things, but an inward reality that's demanded and required of the law. To show indeed our inability to do these things in and of ourselves and to be drawn to him in righteousness. To be drawn to him who is our sacrifice for sin and who is the fulfillment of the law on our behalf. And so as we begin this series and as we look at the the Beatitudes this morning, or at least the first portion of them, it's important for us to to see and even understand the tension I feel as the the preacher this morning. This isn't some list of laws of now go and do this and, and you will be saved. Jesus isn't giving this list of this is the way in which you obtain salvation. Rather, he's giving qualities and truths that will be true of those who are in the kingdom, those who have been made new. And yet there's also this tension in which because of that, we who are in Christ, who are made new in him and are joined together to him, are to walk in this by the power of the Spirit. And so hear that tension this morning. You're not hearing me stand up and proclaim Jesus' words and say, Now go and do and you shall be saved. These are only possible by new life in the Spirit. These are only possible by the rebirth that is given us in the Spirit that joins us to Christ. These are, um, as I was even communicating with Pastor Jimmy yesterday, just thinking through this, these are, these are descriptive, not prescriptive. These are describing those who are in the kingdom, not giving you a list of things to do in order to be in the kingdom. So as we hear that, hear that tension. As we're we're hearing these and we're reading through all of the Sermon on the Mount and you're saying, I don't do this. Then look to Christ who is the propitiation, the, the, the satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sin. Look to Christ who did perfectly do on behalf of his people. And rest in that to be saved. And then plead and pray for God and his grace to conform you more to his image that these things would be true of us. There's a tension there that we have to know. So as we begin our our time, if you would look together with me in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 9 that we're going to deal with this morning. And next week we'll deal with 11 and 12 with the last two Beatitudes. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And we had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
We pray acknowledging our dependency upon you to give us understanding and life in these words. For that is not something we can muster in and of ourselves. Would you break and wound where it is needed that you may heal and restore? Would you comfort and bind the wounds of those who are already broken under the weight of your word that they would look to Christ and be, and be comforted and healed? Would you give life today through the, through the reading and preaching of your word? Lift our eyes to Christ. It's through him we pray. Amen. So again, today we're going to begin our series on the Sermon on the Mount, looking at what is known to us commonly as the Beatitudes. Um, Beatitudes, just we call it that. Well, if we're honest, we call it that because that's what we were told it was called, and that's what it says in a little heading on our Bible. It got that because it comes from the Latin word that means blessed or happy. Um, so that's why we call it the Beatitudes. Or how it got the name Beatitudes. And as we look at this, Jesus begins this section with this series of describing those who are blessed. Again, he's not saying do this and be blessed. It's blessed are those who are this. It's a description of, of this person. And as we look at this idea, we have to understand what it means to be blessed. Because I think we just generally... Um, have different ways in which we can use that word. And so to make sure we all have the understanding of what the word itself meant and what I mean and what Jesus would have meant when he said it. Um, again, oftentimes you, if you've heard sermon series on this, they'll, they'll speak of how blessed means happy. Happy is the one, and that is true. But I think we need to define what the scriptures mean when they say happy is the one or blessed is the one because I don't think Jesus is saying happy is the one and that means that we're running around um, clicking our heels, singing, singing in the rain, and everything is just sunshines and rainbows. Because if you look at the first um, two Beatitudes Jesus gives, that would kind of contradict that. But the blessedness or the happiness that it is speaking of here, I think John MacArthur summed it up best of the ones that I read. It says, The fullest meaning of the term, therefore, had to do with an inward contentedness that is not affected by circumstances. That is the kind of happiness God desires for his children, a state of joy and well-being that does not depend on physical, temporary circumstances. So this blessedness, this happiness is a contentedness within the soul and the spirit of the one. They are, they are at rest, they are at peace in the Lord despite whatever it may be. And Jesus speaks of those who are blessed. And as we look at this list and we begin to work through it, I think it's important for us to note how contrary to the worldview of the world around us this list is. If you were to go around in the streets and ask people, what is it to be happy? What is it to be blessed? You're generally probably going to get, um, have a happy marriage, or I have a really good job, or I have lots of money in my bank account, I'm healthy, I have all the possessions that I want to have. It's temporal. All of their happiness is based upon these things. But if you look at this list Jesus gave, as we look through it, I don't think he could have been more at odds with the, the, the worldview of those who are of the world of what it is to be blessed and happy. Whereas oftentimes our idea of happiness and the world's idea of happiness and what we pursue in happiness is as much comfort and 
possessions as possible, Jesus tends to speak of those who are happy and blessed as those who are broken and humble and mourning and persecuted. We're going to see why that is as we look at these these things. Um, Looking at them, understanding there's an individualness to these and there's a collectiveness to these. Jesus isn't randomly pulling out things and just lumping them together. I would even see there's a sense in which there's a progression in which they are building upon one another. As he grows and goes through them, it's this one necessarily leads to this one that will lead to that one. So as we begin these, let's look together at verse 3. Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. Again, we already see this juxtaposition of terms, it seems. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. It seems as if we would want the opposite of that in order to be happy. But Jesus begins with blessed or happy, contented are the poor in spirit. And we look at this term poor. Um, again, it's important for us to know what it's saying and what it's not saying. One, the term here, there's... there's um, according to things I, I, I read, I don't claim to be a Greek scholar, but there are multiple words in the Greek speaking of poor and poverty. There's the word that's used of the, the widow with the two um, mites that she gives, and she's poor. There's a different word for that, but she's poor, but she still had something. The word that's used here is, is used of a beggar. It's one to, to crouch or to hide in shame is the word, because that's what a beggar would often do is they would beg. This isn't speaking of one who's just almost out of everything. This is speaking of one who is completely destitute to the point of begging and being dependent upon all of those, some, someone around him to provide for him. But it's also important to note what Jesus is not saying here. And Jesus is saying, blessed is the poor in spirit. He's not here speaking, it does not seem of a physical poverty. That blessed are those who are completely destitute and have nothing. It speaks of of those who were rich for the kingdom. It speaks of those who were poor and and used for the kingdom. I don't think Jesus here is speaking of a a temporal, physical poverty. Rather, he's speaking of those who are poor in spirit. Those who are acknowledging and seeing Their beggarly nature when it comes to all things spiritual in and of themselves. One who is emptied out and stripped of all pride and boasting. One who is poor in spirit, understanding that before the the holy tribunal, before the, the judgment seat of God, before the God, the triune God of all the universe, they stand completely bankrupt of all moral adequacy. They are poor in spirit. And again, we we stated at the beginning, I stated at the beginning of this is not some list of go and do. This is something that the spirit has to bring in you. And if, if if we wanted any further evidence, we need not go past the first beatitude. Because in and of ourselves, we're not going to do this. In and of ourselves, we're not going to be those who, as Paul says in Romans 7, nothing good dwells in me. Or as he says in in Timothy, or to to in his letter to Timothy, that he is the chief of sinners. 
was talking to Adam before the service about this. It reminded me of, I don't know if you remember um, Terrell Owens, or T.O. as he was known, that played for, well, played for multiple teams, but he played for the Cowboys. And there's this video of him on the sidelines. And if you ever saw T.O. play, you knew this was very true of him. But he made this statement. He's on there, and he's just boasting, and he's doing his thing. He's like, I love me some me. And if we're honest, T.O. ain't the only one that can say that. By our very nature, we love us some us. But yet those who are blessed, those who are happy in the kingdom, are those who are poor, destitute in spirit. And again, Jesus here is not speaking of, of this idea of, of, oh, I just feel bad about myself. Oh, I wish I was better than I was. Jesus is speaking of before God, we see ourselves as destitute and completely in need of him to give us any and all righteousness. We are beggars for his mercy. We are beggars for his grace. And again, if you contrast this with the world... Happy are those who are proud. Happy are those who are self-sufficient. Happy are those who are full of self-love and self-confidence. And yet the scriptures call us to be stripped of all of those things before the Lord and look to Him. Seeing who we are in our sin and in our misery. Stripped of all hope in and of ourselves and look to him. And what is the blessing of this? Because Jesus in these beatitudes doesn't just say a general blessed are these. He tells how they're going to be blessed. He tells what the happiness is that they have to look forward to. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom. Because it is those who look to Christ who are in the kingdom. It is those who understand their moral bankruptcy before the Lord, who look to Him, who are a part of the kingdom. And again, this isn't some I'm saved by my contrition. I'm saved by my acknowledging of my own unworthiness. I'm saved by Christ. I'm saved by Him and His righteousness. But I'll never see a need for Him unless I'm poor in spirit, stripped of all other hope, and all of the means. And this necessarily, I think, leads to the second beatitude that Jesus gives. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, again, I think it's important for us to understand what's meant and not meant here. There, there are all different kinds of mourning we can look to. In the scripture we see even mourning that's Considered sinful, we see those who are mourning because they could not satisfy their own sinful desires. We see those who are mourning over good things that mourn to an extent that it became sinful for, for them. But we also see good types of mourning over things in the scripture. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. We see mourning all throughout the scripture for lo loss of loved ones or for the suffering and pain of those that are going on around us. But even in this, I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. When we look at what surrounds this particular beatitude, 
flowing out of the reality of those who are poor in spirit, what's our response to that? When I see my sinfulness, when I see my, my unworthiness before the Lord, what's my response? I mourn and weep over my sin and over sin in general. I think the, the context here would point this isn't just mourning for mourning's sake or even mourning over things that are good to mourn over. It's mourning particularly flowing out of this poverty of spirit that we have. Mourning over our sin and the sins of others. And again, this morning is not merely just as the poor in spirit is not merely some outward expression. This morning is not some outward expression of wailing. It's an inward reality of being broken in a mourning over the reality of our sinfulness. The reality of our inadequacy. The reality of how we have sinned and rebelled against the Lord of heaven. And not just our sin only, but looking at the sins of the world around us. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn over these things. Again, I said at the beginning, I come as one who is convicted by this reality. Even last night, thinking through this. Is there a mourning over the sin in my life? Is there a mourning over the sin that is around us, that we see? So often we joke about the sin that is around us, or we make light of the sin that is in our own life. But, and again, I don't want to turn this into a law that it's not. But for those who are in Christ, if we rightly see our poverty in spirit, and we understand the poverty of those who are around us, would it not bring us to tears from time to time? That we would mourn the way we have sinned against the Lord. Again, we see this in Psalm 51. We see other examples, but in Psalm 51, we see this broken and contrite heart, this mourning of David over his sin. Against you and you only have I sinned. Done what is wicked in your sight. So Jesus says, happy are those who are beggarly in the spirit, Happy are those who mourn over their sin. Why? Because they shall be comforted. This mourning is not a, the end of itself, but it drives us to the one who wipes away every tear and who pardons the sin that we have committed and gives us righteousness in its place. So we are poor, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn, which leads then to a the reality of blessed are those who are meek or gentle. Um, this word here is used in other places in Scripture. It's used in probably one that was most familiar to me and, and kind of helped make the point of Matthew 11 where Jesus says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for I am lowly and gentle in heart. Right? That word gentle there is the word that's used here. And so we see Jesus speaking of this reality that's true of himself. And in that, it's important for us, and I think that gives us a picture of what Jesus means by what it means to be meek or gentle here. He's not speaking of, of becoming pacifists where we just sit around and, and close our eyes and, and just do nothing and never speak against anything or stand against anything, but we just sit idly by and think that is gentleness. Again, it sounds cliche even as I say it, but a, a 
saw it stated this way of, of meekness is not weakness. Jesus isn't saying the, this passivity here. Again, we look at the meekness of Jesus. This Jesus who is gentle and lowly in heart. This Jesus who, as First Peter tells us, um, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Though he was sinless. Though he had every claim to make for his own justification. Like a sheep before its shears is silent. Not a word was uttered out of his mouth. He endured the suffering. He endured the, the, the mockery of those around him for the, for the sake of righteousness. But the same Jesus who has humbly entered Jerusalem mounted on the, the coat of a donkey is the same Jesus for the sake of his Father's righteousness and glory cleared the temple in the same chapter. So this meekness, again, is not a weakness, but there's a gentleness to where we are willing to endure because we have been humbled, because we understand our poverty of spirit, and because we understand the mournfulness of our own sin and our entitlement to nothing, there's a meekness and a gentleness to us as we deal with the world around us. Yes, we confront sin where it is needed, and yes, we stand for righteousness where it is needed. There's a meekness and a gentleness when we are mocked and ridiculed. There's a meekness and a gentleness when we are defamed. There's a meekness and a gentleness when we are persecuted. Because of the poorness of our spirit in the morning of our sin, we walk with a humility, not a haughtiness around with those around us. And again, contrast this to the world. Blessed are the strong is their refrain. Blessed are those who let no one take advantage of them. Blessed are those who get and get and take and take and let no one get from them. And Jesus stands and says, Happy, contented are the ones who are meek, who are gentle. For they shall inherit the earth. And why shall they inherit the earth? Because it's their fathers to give and they are a part of his kingdom through Christ. And so theirs is the earth to inherit. So we see this progression again. There's a poverty of spirit. There's this acknowledging our, our, our poverty before him spiritually. We mourn our sinfulness. And in that we, we are gentle and meek with those around us. And then I think that necessarily leads us to our next beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Acknowledging our poverty and acknowledging our mourning before sin and in that being meek and humble before those around us. We long and we yearn for righteousness. We long and we yearn for holiness and sanctification. Psalm 42. The psalmist says, As the deer pants for streams of water. Again, we, we somewhat lose the, the punch of some of those things of yearning for water that's mentioned in the scripture and those things. Because even this morning, I get up and the first thing I do is I grab a glass of water and what do I do? Or I grab a glass and get a drink of water. And I have water. When the psalmist speaks of as the deer longs for streams of water, he's speaking of the deer in the middle of the desert where there's not water. 
And this idea of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Again, we saw this in Psalm 119 where the psalmist is longing and yearning not just for the word of God, but to walk in obedience to it. This yearning, uh, longing as one who is in famine longs for food and one who is in drought longs for water. We who are hungry and thirsty and in poverty before the Lord long for righteousness. And again, ultimately, that's only found in Christ. Our, our satisfaction will only be found in him for he alone can give us righteousness. We will not satisfy that. Yet as those who are his people, who have been saved by him, who in our poverty and in our mourning have lifted our eyes to Christ to save us, to be our righteousness, now long to be conformed like him. We hunger and thirst, not satisfied in our brokenness, not satisfied in our sinfulness, yet long and hunger and yearn after righteousness. Again, even drawing back to our assurance of pardon. It's by grace you've been saved. And how does that end? Because we've been predestined for good works. We've been saved by grace. He has saved us. It is his work alone. And he has saved us to now walk and conform us into the image of his son. We who are his people, those who are blessed in the kingdom, are to be those who will necessarily hunger and thirst after righteousness. With a single-minded longingness. Again, the conviction and, and, and nature in which I feel unworthy to stand and, and preach this flows in, in this text of this reality of so much, how much more we long and yearn after other things. And again, I'm, I'm wanting to be careful in how I teach this because there is that tension we mentioned at the beginning. I don't want to take away the weight of this text, but I also don't want you to leave and thinking I have to go and I... If I yearn for holiness enough, then God will love me. That's not what we're saying. But dear one who claims to be that one who has seen his poverty in spirit, who claims that you alone look to Christ for righteousness, the scriptures teach clearly that those who are, who are in him will long to be like him. Because the Spirit in us will conform us to Him. The Spirit in us gives us that longing and that yearning to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Not to be righteous, but because we are righteous in Him, we long to be like Him. So hungering and thirsting after righteousness and the blessingness that comes from that is that these are the ones who will be satisfied. Again, you look at the, the contrast to the world and what they tell you to hunger and thirst after. We, we mentioned the Super Bowl next week. What's the Super Bowl known for? Typically not football for most people because most people watching the Super Bowl haven't watched a single other game since the last Super Bowl. Probably known most for two things. Halftime shows and what? Commercials. And every one of those commercials is doing their best to try to convince you that you are unsatisfied without the thing they're trying to sell you. 
Long after this thing. Go after this thing. Get the newest this thing. Fulfill your lust and desires in this way. Go after this. Get all of these things and then you'll be satisfied. And they know it's a lie as good as you do. And yet the world tells us to go continually to these things that will not satisfy with the hope and promise that you'll be content and happy and satisfied in those things. And yet Jesus tells us the one who is satisfied, the one who is happy and blessed and content is the one who yearns and longs after righteousness because he will be satisfied. Again, Jesus teaches something similar as we're going to see later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat. Don't be anxious about what you're going to wear. And then how does he close that out if you're familiar with it? Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And these things will be added to you. Our initial seeking, our initial yearning is is not ultimately after the things of this world. Those who are of the kingdom, those who are in him will be renewed and restored in their spirits to yearn and long after righteousness. Then Jesus flows from that into the blessed are the merciful. And again, we we see the progression. There's been this poverty of spirit. There's been this acknowledging our emptiness before the Lord. There's this mourning over our sin. There's this gentleness that now is produced in us and is hungering and thirsting after righteousness because we understand that we don't have it in and of ourselves. And that will necessarily lead those to be merciful. Why? They've been given mercy. They've been shown mercy by the Lord who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. Having acknowledged all we have prior and having received the mercy of God, we are those who are merciful. Those who are blessed are those who are not holding grudges against those who have sinned against them. Not those who are withholding forgiveness until demands have been met. Rather, those who are merciful, quick to forgive. Again, bringing to mind Matthew 18, not with the first part that everybody often thinks of with the church discipline, what's often known as the church discipline text, but the the part flowing out of that where Jesus gives the parable of the unforgiving debtor. Who to give a kind of a paraphrase of it, the, the guy owes the king an unpayable amount of money. Pleads for mercy and the king forgives him. And that servant goes out to someone who owes him an exponentially smaller amount of money and beats him and throws him in prison and demands that he pays him. And the story ends with him being then cast into prison because he was unmerciful. But those who have rightly understood the poverty of their spirit and mourned over their sin and seen the grace and mercy and forgiveness in, that is ours in Christ will naturally and necessarily be merciful. Because we are those who are the children of God, the God who is, as the scripture says of him numerous times, this God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, we likewise should walk in what we have received. And then Jesus even says that the blessing of those who are merciful is that they will receive mercy. We give mercy because we've received mercy, and in that we receive mercy. 
because of what has flowed and what God has done in us. And in our mercifulness and in our hungering and thirsting after righteousness, it is those who are pure in heart who are blessed. For they shall see God. Here it speaks of a purity that goes beyond a surface level. And this longing for holiness, our holiness that we're yearning and hungering after is not merely this outward expression. Jesus confronted the Pharisees multiple times over this reality. Accusing them of being whitewashed tombs that look nice on the outside but inside have dead bones. Or being like a cup who was washed on the outside that you could see but the inside was still dirty. Here Jesus is clarifying and speaking of what is true of these who are blessed in the kingdom. And it is those who are pure of heart. Not one who is merely satisfied with an outward appearance of holiness, but one who longs and yearns for it inwardly. 1 John chapter 3, we've used it here multiple times as a benediction, but John in there speaks of, um, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. But what we shall be is not yet seen. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And then what does He say? And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We who are those who have acknowledged our poverty in spirit, who have mourned and are meek and genuine, longing after righteousness, we long to be pure in heart. Longing to walk in the spirit of the fruit of the spirit that we have seen read even earlier today. And in this, Jesus says that the blessedness that the pure in heart have the hope that they have in this of their blessing is that they shall see God. And again, it's important to understand what these, these blessings that are here, when it says, blessed are these for theirs is this, he's necessarily excluding those who that's not true of. And so blessed are those who are pure in heart for they shall see God, meaning if you're not pure in heart, you won't see him. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, um, to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And again, I want to be careful. I don't want you leaving here and, and, and somehow in this point miss everything else that was said and leave here thinking, I'm saved by my holiness. You're saved by the holiness of another. You're saved by the righteousness of Christ. And those who are thus saved by him long to be like him. Those who are saved like him will be conformed to his image. Not perfectly here. But there will be a growth in a holiness that is beyond surface level. And we'll see a growth in a holiness in our inner self. And again, I think in this we have to ask and answer the question, are, are we... Are we content with merely a surface level holiness? Are we content with merely hungering and thirsting after a surface level righteousness? Or are we those who claim to be the ones who are blessed in this, longing and yearning to even put the impure thoughts, the impure motives, the impure desires to death by the power of the Spirit? To wage war against every aspect of sin that we see in our lives. That we would long to be like the king who has saved us. Long to walk in obedience to him and purity of heart. 
And then Jesus moves into, Blessed are the peacemakers. As those who have known mercy and have been reconciled, we are those who walk as peacemakers. Because we have been reconciled with God, we are at peace with Him. We long to be at peace with those around us. Now again, it's important, just as we did with gentleness and other ones, to explain what's not meant here. I don't think Jesus is teaching a pacifism. I don't think Jesus is saying that we never get into conflict, that we never have confrontation. Because again, we see even in the life of Jesus, him confronting the Pharisees, him confronting um, those who were in error and speaking falsely against God. So we're to be peacemakers, we're to walk in peace in as much as depends on us to be at peace with all people, as Paul tells us. Not at the expense of truth, not at the expense of holiness. But we are to be those who again, understanding the peace we now have with the God of the universe, to be those who will necessarily walk in peace with those around us. Seek to be those who long and yearn for peace, not to stir up discord and strife, not to be those who go looking for trouble, not to be those who go and try to see ways that we can poke and prod and cause division, but to be those who strive for unity, to be those who strive for peace, and when there's not, we, we strive as hard as we can and work as hard as we can and are not satisfied until we have done what we can to see that peace is restored and reconciled. We long for it. And then Jesus, again, gives the blessing, for they shall be called sons of God. And again, with all of these blessings, they, they're not true. I, mean, I can't see the argument for it anyway. They're, they're not true. You did these things, now you've earned the right to be called children of God. You've done these things, now you've earned the right to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You've inherited the kingdom of heaven and you've evidenced that by being those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, those who are gentle, those who are poor in spirit. Again, this is the work of God in us, driving us to these things. So as we look at this and we've seen, and again, next week we're going to look at the last two, but as we've, if we've, as we've looked at these Beatitudes and we've looked at these who are blessed and happy and content, those who have inherited the kingdom or will inherit the kingdom and see God and inherit the earth. I think there's, there's a very good possibility and again, if nothing else, I get to preach to myself right now. There's a very good possibility that some of you have been confronted with the reality of, man, I'm, I'm not, this isn't, this isn't true of me right now. I've allowed a pride of spirit to, to creep in. I don't mourn my sin, I excuse it. I'm not pure in heart and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Again, I want to draw us back to where we began. This is not a work you can do. This is not a work you can muster. If you have zero desire to yearn after holiness and you've never been confronted with the poverty of your spirit and the reality of your sin, I, I don't think that's something you can just power up enough and come out of here and do. So what's our response to this? Pray and plead that God would make this true of us. 
Pray and plead to the God who we've already seen. We saw it in our confession, the fruit of the Spirit. If you look at the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit produces in us, a lot of similarities to what Jesus is speaking of here. We long and we plead for the Spirit to do His work in us and make us humble and willing to walk in accord with Him. And in that, Lift your eyes to Christ. If you're here and you've never, you've never seen Christ as good and you've never trusted upon him and you've never been confronted with the poverty of your spirit and you've never began to see the reality of your sinfulness and the mourning that it should invoke in us and the reality of our sinfulness and judgment before the Lord. And today you're here and that reality has confronted you. Hear me. I've not just given you a list of things to go and do and make right with that. I've given you evidence of those who have been made right in that. But today if you're here and you're confronted with that reality and it's like, what do I do now? Look to the Christ who is all of these things on behalf of his people. Look to the Christ who perfectly walked in righteousness and holiness and kept every demand of the law. Look to the Christ who atoned for the sins of his people by bearing the the penalty of it upon the cross. Look to the Christ who fulfills all righteousness. Acknowledge the poverty of your spirit and the nothingness that you can bring to your salvation and look to the Christ who gives all of it. For those who are in Christ and you're confronted by the reality of the way some of these have waned in you, the answer is no different. Run to Christ, the sure and steady anchor. Look to the Christ who atoned for, who grants us righteousness and gave us the promise that his spirit would fill us and that the Father would sanctify us in truth. Look to him. Plead with him that he would give you a hunger and a longing for his word and for righteousness. Plead with him that he would give you grace to long to put every sin and impurity and thought and word and deed to death. Plead with him that he would humble us. Look to Christ. For he alone is our righteousness. And now let us go and seek to be those who are um, walking as children of the kingdom. Would you pray with me? Our God in heaven, we are humbled, if we see it rightly, by the weight of your commandments, by the weight of the reality of what is true of those who are of the kingdom, and we acknowledge um, our inability in these things. 
we see these and, and we acknowledge if we again see them rightly and I pray you would open our eyes to do so we we acknowledge this is not some work we can accomplish so Father we pray that by the grace of of the reading of your word and by the work of your spirit you would grant in us longings for these things you would work this in us that we would then walk in obedience and truth by your power and by your strength would you give life it's through Christ we pray these things amen